we're going to begin a new sermon series. We're calling it Blessed. And uh, we're going to look at, beginning with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And we're going to read that in a moment. The first 12 verses of a familiar text to many of us. But I need to split my time this morning a little bit because I need to get you, give you some perspective Uh, sort of the view from 30,000 feet, so to speak, about the text um, that we're looking at. And then after getting some perspective, I want us to get personal a little bit with this text, in particular with chapter 5 and verse 3. So if you would, if you would turn there um, in Matthew's gospel and uh, chapter 5 and just hold your finger there for a moment now. And you will recognize that this is the prologue or the first words of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which was the inaugural address in the Gospel of Matthew delivered by Jesus. Um, Those of you who have actually visited the site know it's not really a mountain, it's like a big hill. But it's called the Sermon on the the Mount and for good reason, um, as we'll note in a moment. Um, And these words were recorded by who? By Matthew. What do you know about Matthew? Um, He's first known in the Gospels as Levi. Um, Mark's Gospel tells us that uh, he was Levi's son of Alphaeus, and Alphaeus means chieftain or chief in uh, in the Hebrew. And so so the likelihood is that he came from a very uh, uh, well-known and prominent family, influential family uh, in, uh, in, in the life of uh, Judah, in, in the life of Jerusalem. And, and uh, so we know that about him. We also know that there was something else about Levi that was extremely significant. And that is, is that he took whatever wealth from the family that he had and he bought a very lucrative money-making franchise from the Romans. He became a tax collector. And so this was a guy who uh, was uh, accompanied often by Roman guards to protect him. He was that despised by his own people because he would skim off of the top of the taxes paid to Rome to keep, you know, to keep money for himself. And so he was literally was robbing his own people. Now, we do know something else besides the fact that he was driven by greed. And I would suggest to you that he was probably not internally very happy. Because there was a moment in time when he stood before Jesus, and Jesus offered him a place among his own men, called him as a disciple, and he left the tax table and went to follow Jesus. And shortly thereafter, Levi's name was changed to Matthew which means gift of God. So there was a transformation that took place in his life. He was probably, as suggested by many scholars, uh, used to keeping records. And so there are many scholars who believe that Matthew was one of the ones that carefully recorded the teaching of Jesus. I think that's likely including the text that we will have before us today. So now what was Matthew's intent with writing this gospel? To whom did he address his his gospel? 
primarily to a Jewish audience. Those who needed to come to recognize Jesus as not only their Messiah, but as their true and only King. And so you will notice in Matthew's gospel an emphasis on the fulfillment of of Scripture continually throughout the text, uh, uh, an, an emphasis upon the symbolic meaning of numbers because numbers were significant to the Jews. There's an emphasis upon the apocalyptic, the the uh, the end times, the, the 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 day of judgment that that shows up at the end of the gospel and how Messiah and His reign plays into that. And so there there is much in this gospel that would uh, that would um, relate to. Uh, a Jewish audience, but it also became um, pretty well known in the early church as a a document about discipleship, about what it means to follow Christ. So let me say just a word about the structure of the gospel uh, because it's meaningful. Uh, Matthew makes no attempt at close chronology. He leaves that to, to the gospel writer Luke. But he builds his narrative of the life of Jesus around five distinct discourses or bodies of teaching that were delivered by Jesus. And we are going to begin today with the first, with the Sermon on the Mount, found in, in chapters 5 through 7. And, and one of the ways, now, if, if you've got a, a red letter edition, then you can open up Matthew and you can pretty well see the five discourses in the red letters. But of course, they didn't have a red letter editions in the, old, in the old scrolls, did they? But Matthew carefully marks each of these for us. Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And the last verses, last verses of chapter 7, listen to what he says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And it's the Greek word teleo, when he finished these sayings. So that's the first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, chapter 5 through 7. The second is the commissioning of the 12 disciples to go out and for them to preach the gospel in neighboring villages. And that discourse is found in chapter 10. At the, at the, it's all in chapter 10. In chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, and Jesus, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Telio. The third discourse is the parables of the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, he lumps together about eight parables into one chapter, into chapter, uh, into chapter 13. Okay? At the end of chapter 13, the last verse, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, Telio, when he had finished. So you see how Mar- Matthew's marking this for us. The fourth discourse, teaching of Jesus, is private teaching to the disciples on humility and on forgiveness, found in all of chapter 18. At the end of chapter 18, when you begin chapter 19, verse 1, it said, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, what Matthew is telling us is that he just finished the fourth discourse, but now he's headed into Jerusalem for the, you know, for the, the last roundup, in a sense. He's headed into Jerusalem for the conflict that will happen 
there. And then the fifth discourse happens in Jerusalem in the temple when Jesus begins to teach. And it's called the, the seven woes. And this begins in Matthew chapter 23 and continues through chapter 25, 23, 24, and 25. It's the seven woes and in, in, in found in chapter 23. And then in chapter 24 and chapter 25, he's with the disciples in a quiet place after leaving the temple. And he's explaining to them the, you know, the, the signs of his coming. It's a very apocalyptic uh, kind of sounding uh, message and sermon. And at the end of that, right, um, when he comes to the end of that, Jesus says, or no, Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 20, um, at the beginning of chapter 26 in verse 1, and when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and to be crucified. So five times he uses the teleo to, you know, to identify these five discourses. And I think there's a beautiful symmetry in the gospel. And I'm amazed every time I just dig into this stuff. Because you do realize what the very last word Jesus ever spoke from the cross was. To tell a sty from teleos. To tell a sty it is finished. So Matthew records for us these five great discourses of Jesus. Some were recorded and preached publicly. Some as the discourse to humility and forgiveness to the disciples. I'm saying, and there's a reason. Why would there be five discourses? Remember the symbol, the sim, how a numbers symbolic to the Jews. So how many books of Moses are there? All right, so what Matthew's doing in seeking to reach this Jewish audience is he's, he's helping them to understand. He's helping them to, to see the symbol that as Moses gave them the five books of the law, now Jesus gives them these five sermons about the kingdom, which are significant, significant to the kingdom. And you'll remember, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and nights, and he comes back with the law, right? You remember? Literally, he came back with two tablets, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he goes up on the mountain and he teaches with authority and power. A message straight from God. He doesn't come down with tablets. He just speaks of his own authority. Do you get it? So Matthew is helping us to see the contrast between Moses as the giver of the law and, and the old covenant with the new covenant in Jesus, if you will. And so just to set up this very first section of, uh, of Matthew, okay, chapter 1 and 2 of Matthew are the birth stories, right? Chapter 3 is the introduction of John the Baptist as the forerunner where John begins to preach six months before Jesus comes on the scene. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. He comes out of the wilderness and begins to preach about the kingdom and he gives us the first, he gives us these, those two words of Tremendous significance that he speaks to the first disciples and he speaks also to us. Follow me. He 
gives us the two words. Follow me. All right? Okay. At the end of chapter 4, listen. And he went throughout all of Galilee, 4 verse 23, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay? That's introducing this first section of of Matthew's gospel. Now in chapter 9, at the end of this section, verse 35, listen to what he says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's almost verbatim the same sentence, isn't it? Why? Because he's completing that section for us. And what you need to take, what you need to understand is that in the section... At the end of beginning of chapter five, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got Jesus' words, uh, and then accompanied in that same section by his works. He's going to speak the word. He's going to describe the kingdom and the followers who who will live in the kingdom, his kingdom. And, and then he then he goes out and ushers in, begins to usher in that kingdom with power. And so he goes from the Sermon on the Mount to touching a, and healing a, a leper. And then he heals the, the servant of, a, of, of all people, a Roman centurion. And then he gets in the boat with the disciples and he calms the storm, doesn't he? And he comes out of that and he, and he heals and he casts out demons. And then he, he heals a, a paralytic, a paralyzed a paralyzed man, and then he, he goes from that to, to heal a woman who'd had an issue of blood or hemophilia for you know for years and years. And from that he he walks into a room where there's a little girl who is dead and he raises her to life. Now I think it's important. This is why I want to point that out to you. Is because you do not separate his words from his works. You don't. Because, you know, his, because he comes and he, you know, he instructs and he teaches and he helps us to understand you know, the Father, the heart of the Father and what, and what he's doing by his words. And then he backs it up with his power, with his works. Saying, because if you just sat down and you study the teachings of Jesus, you're going to get pretty darn discouraged pretty quick because none of us in this room can keep the teachings of Jesus. You get that? You cannot keep his words without his work, without his power flowing into your life. Transformational grace is what we call it. And so as you read the Beatitudes, you need to understand there's more going on here than Jesus just trying to tell you how to live. He's going to provide for you the power for you to live the life that he calls you to. Are you with me? And this is the pattern in the gospel. The words and the teachings along with the works. Words and works. And Jesus doesn't really separate those. In his mind and thinking. Okay, so are we ready? Ready to do some reading? Okay. All right, so let's go to chapter 5. Now, as we read, uh, we're going to read all eight of the Beatitudes together. And then I'm going to go back and camp out on verse 3. Here's what, I need you to, here's what I need you to notice, okay? As we're reading these, um, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and thus the theme of the Beatitudes, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. 
And so, um, you, you, first of all, you need to understand that the emphasis is on the realm of relationships. It's about relationship with God. The first four Beatitudes speak of how our relationship with God is established and grows. The last four of the Beatitudes, that's the, the first four are the vertical relationship. The last four are the horizontal relationship of how we live in relationship with each other in the kingdom. Are you with me? So it's, it's, it, you need to listen from in, with a sense of that we are in the, the realm of operating within the realm of relationship. Secondly, I would want to say that all of the Beatitudes, all eight Beatitudes are an integrated whole. They are unified. They are not separate from each other. They are an integrated whole. Okay? All right? Now, so what do I mean by that? Okay. Notice the blessing that's given in the first. See, Jesus says, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what's the blessing that you get, you know, um, but in, in the first beatitude? You, you get the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now look at the last beatitude. If you look at the last beatitude, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven same thing the same thing now this is what's called a literary envelope it's like you have an envelope you open up the envelope and you just begin to drop you know you know you these things in that envelope because the first beatitude mirrors this is what this is what it's it it means to to be given the kingdom and the last beatitude this is what it means to be given the kingdom these things are all brought together in in a, in a integrated whole in a unified kind of a whole that these are all blessings that are given to those who live in the kingdom so there you don't see them as separate you see them as an integrated kind of a whole and there's a third thing these are uh, these are both now and then they're present and future okay just by looking at the verbs you see it jesus says blessed uh, are the poor in spirit for theirs is present tense present tense the moment you know what i'm saying that you that you come to understand your your brokenness your poverty before God. You, you're, that's the present, in present tense, that's when you enter in. The kingdom is yours, already is yours. Last beatitude, present tense. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of God. So you're, it's, it's present. It's now, but it's also then, because the six beatitudes in the middle, sandwiched between the two outside in the, you know, in the, in this literary envelope, are future tense. Blessed are the those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. So it's the kingdom is both present and future. You begin to experience now what Jesus is saying. The moment you begin, you enter into kingdom life, you begin to experience, with a, in a sense, a foretaste of all that will be brought to culmination in Christ when we are with him in heaven. In other words, let, let me just illustrate that. Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you experience comfort from him here? 
in the midst of your sorrow. Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're instructed to comfort one another with the comfort that we have received from him. You see, in this life, right? Blessed are they that mourn for they, but they shall be comforted. But there's also a sense in the book of Revelation, when you get to, it says, it says, Jesus will wipe away every tear in heaven. Now, you know, I know that some rock star, you know, wrote no tears in heaven, right? Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture says there will be tears in heaven. But here's the deal. Jesus will personally wipe away every tear. There is present and future comfort. You know, the, the comfort that we receive here is, is, is remarkable. But what will it be when we are with him and he wipes away every tear? Do you see it? It's both present and future. Okay, so let's read the Beatitudes together. Verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. And his disciples came to him. So what Matthew's telling us is there, there, there are a couple of concentric circles here. Close into Jesus are the disciples, but there's a large crowd that's gathered that's listening in as well, that's invited into the conversation. And he sat down, which was the characteristic position of anyone who was in rabbinical service and would teach. They would sit when they taught. And he opened his mouth, verse 2, and he taught them, saying, now this is interesting to me and perhaps to you, but literally you would translate that he began to teach them, saying, it's in the imperfect tense of the Greek, Greek which stresses a beginning point, you know what I'm saying, a, a beginning point, but with continuous action. In other words, this was not a one-time deal. This wouldn't be the only time he would share these thoughts with his disciples. He would continue to teach them. They would come back to this again and again. And I would tell you that in my own personal life, I come back here again and again and again. He continually teaches us these truths. And so he was saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now verses 11 and 12 provide commentary or expand upon the eighth beatitude. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. And so what we're going to do over the next eight weeks is we're going to take these one at a time. One at a time. And look with a little depth at the meaning that we find there. And so we look today at the first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word poor there is the word patokos in, in the Greek. There are several words that would, you know what I'm saying, that would be used to describe those who are poor and struggling and living, let's say, um, paycheck to paycheck or, or a little bit on the edge. But this is the strongest and harshest of the words in the Greek for poverty. It means basically total and abject poverty, penniless, bankrupt, empty-handed spiritually. I was the last of four children, shared some of this with Celebrate Recovery not too long ago. Uh, there were two sets of two children. Um, I have an older brother who's 12 years older, and a sister who's almost eight years older, born before World War II. And, and my brother Tom and I were born after the war. Tom is two years, was two years older than I. And Tom very early on began to show some emotional issues and problems that became, um, worked their way into a kind of learning disability by the age of, of about 17 uh, because of poor choices in his life and because of friendships. Tom got involved in drug addiction. And, um, and, and lived a life in, uh, in, a, in drug addiction. Um, he died at the age of 35. And so I grew up in a family with uh, a father who uh, was a traveling salesman and was gone usually Sunday night or early Monday morning until, uh, until late Thursday night. And we would see dad on the weekends and my mom was pretty much left in charge. And my mom and, and my brother Tom had this kind of codependent thing that was going and, and at the time, I didn't realize how deeply it was impacting me. Because, see, here was my job description in the family. When you grow up in a family like that with that level of dysfunction, you get a job description. You do realize that, right? And so here was my job description. Number one, I had to try to keep everyone happy and harmonious. I'm saying, I, you know, I was the jokester, you know, uh, you know, Pratt Falls, anything I could do to try to keep everybody laughing and keep everybody happy and harmonious because there was a lot of pain underneath, right? And uh, so that was my job description, okay? And, and, and that worked its way into that I became pretty much a people pleaser. Just sort of figure out what's going on and then, you know, you got to get in there and try to, you know, try to make everybody smile and make everybody happy. Keep everybody happy, right? And, 
The second thing in my job description is I had to rescue my brother. I had to take care of my brother. I was always looking out for my brother. You know, in the prodigal son story, remember the prodigal is the youngest boy. And I, you know, in, in our case, it was inverted. The prodigal was my older brother. And, and so I was the one who had to stay home. And, and, you know, but I was, always, I was always sent. I always felt my mission was somehow to try to protect him, to try to keep him out of trouble, to rescue him in, in some f- form or fashion. Can you see how that would set me up for, like, maybe becoming a pastor Trying to rescue people, you know. And there was a third thing in my job description. Because my brother spent most of his time living off the rails, I had to get it right. I had to stay on the rails. And so, so legalism was very much a part of my life. Um, um, it set me up for, for, for perfectionism and for performance orientation and so to get noticed in my family, I made all A's. Like all the time I made all A's. And there were highs and lows that came with that. You know, when you're living legalistically or you're trying to be perfect, you know, you, 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 know, you, you go back and forth between a sense of deep guilt and shame when you blow it or self-righteousness when you're getting it right, right? You're, but you're always struggling because I always seem to be, you know, at some point I'm... I'm I'm breaking some rule or I'm not living up to this super high standard that, that has been set for me or I've set for myself. And, and so, uh, so the other derivative of that was I become, I become uh, deceptive and, and, and prideful because I don't want to look bad. Like I'm, I got to please people, right? I got to keep everybody happy and I got to keep everybody happy and I'm rescuing my brother all the time. And then I'm trying to live like really perfectly. And that was my job description. Um, now, I need to tell you how I got paid. All right? Because I got paid uh, in my family. And, and here's how it went. My brother would do something really stupid, make really bad decisions. He'd get in trouble. Sometimes got thrown in jail and stuff like that. You know, and, you know, and, but my mom would always bail him out. My mom would always take care of him. A Tom. Okay. And then afterwards, there was this little code. My mom would say, hey, I've got to go to Piggly Wiggly to pick up some groceries. And Piggly Wiggly was right next to the Dillard's department store in our town growing up, just like down the block. And so here's how I got paid. My brother would mess up, I'm saying, and to reward me. You know, the code was, I got to go to Piggly Wiggly, will you go with me? I would go with, and my mom would take me to the Dillard's, and she would buy me something. Like a new shirt, new pants, new socks, new sweater, new sport jacket. Back then, we wore ties a lot. Sure, glad that day's gone, but I did something new. That's how I got paid. And it was this sort of secret code. And then in the, in the, on the ride back home in the car, it was always the same message from my mom. Now, don't tell Tom. This is our little secret. You know he wouldn't understand. Right? All right, so fast forward some years. 
I'm involved in collegiate ministry, and, uh, and I've had several pretty direct encounters with the Beatitudes, with this text. The, the first came as a student worker looking for a, a pathway of, you know, of discipleship and transformation with, with students. And so the, the, my first encounter came as a, as a college minister at Stephen F. Austin when I decided to take the Sermon on the Mount, break it down, and begin to study. I spent four years studying and teaching the Sermon on the Mount upperclassmen students and so and it was a very academic exercise I would say but I was not poor at it and then there was this very direct encounter that happened a few years later and it was when my first marriage ended now I need to set this up because you see I knew my job description pretty well. And so when I was a grad student in theology school, um, I met this gal, and she was a damsel in distress. It, it didn't hurt that she was pretty, okay, but she was a damsel in distress. She'd been deeply wounded and hurt in a previous relationship and a broken in engagement. And I, here I was, you know, playing on this co-ed softball team for the summer and we start hanging out, and, and, and before long, I'm rescuing her. I, I'm a, I am a knight in shining armor. That didn't last long, by the way. We got married, and in no time, I fell off the horse and I could never get back on. This was the most painful thing in my life. Here I was, I could be successful in ministry, working with college kids. You know, I'm pleasing a lot of people. I'm taking care of a lot of people. I'm working hard because, I'm, and because perfectionism leads me to workaholism, right? And, uh, and I've, I've got all these people around me and we're getting results, but I couldn't succeed at the thing that mattered the most, my relationship with my wife. I couldn't connect. And after 14 years of marriage, she walked away. And I remember it so vividly um, that I volunteered uh, to let her and the kids stay in the house we were living. And that Saturday morning, in the wee hours of the morning, still dark, I packed the back seat of the car with my clothes and personal items. You know, and then in, um, in this huge, tearful goodbye, I got in the car and I drove away. And uh, within 48 hours of that, um, I resigned my ministry, my student ministry, and lost my job in ministry. And so here's what I vividly remember. I remember that uh, after losing everything, my marriage, day-to-day contact with my, my children, and the pain associated with that, and my ministry 
and with my car full of stuff and nowhere to go, I drove to a little park on the north side of Lake Louisville on a hot August morning. And I pulled into the park and there were concrete picnic tables. And I went and sat for the day at a concrete picnic table. And I wept. I mean, what else was there to do? And in the midst of that experience, the Word of God began to flow into my life in a new and transforming way. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, the empty, the impoverished, the bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall receive comfort. Blessed are the meek, the ones who bow before me and surrender to me, for they shall inherit the earth. And and I would tell you that something happened in the park that day where the Word of God became more real to me than it had ever been before. It wasn't an academic exercise. It was pressed into me on that day. That was my first, like, super direct encounter with the Word of God and, and, and this text. There was another that came a few years after that. Came to work here at Willow Bend and, um, and we had started this Celebrate Recovery program. Though I would tell you that up to that point in the first three or four years of the program, none of us as leaders and elders in the church had ever done a step study. Right? And the step studies are based on the, in the Beatitudes. And so, uh, so, so, so here's how I got into a step study, all right? So I'm in my office one day, and we have this really, 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 I can't describe how bad the day was. We had a really, really bad day. Just a bunch of stuff was just kind of blowing up around us. And I was so discouraged, I was so defeated at the end of the day that I got in my car, and as I was driving home, and... Most of you know, like where I like to spend my day off anyway. I found myself just pulling into the parking lot at Home Depot. And within minutes, I'm standing in front of a $675 table saw, and I'm getting ready to buy that sucker. (laughs) And then this little voice inside me, this little voice, and I think it's the Holy Spirit. Now, it wasn't audible, but it was clear. Because it was like, it was like right behind me. This little voice said, Dave, what are you doing? And I actually, you know, I actually replied back verbally. I'm about to buy me a table saw. (laughs) You remember how I get paid I learned that when I was depressed, broken, when I felt empty, you know how I filled that space? 
I use that credit card. And I'm standing there in Home Depot and I realize for the first time what's really happening to me. Because the Holy Spirit began to work in my life, you know, and remind me, Dave, you've been here again and again and again. Are we going to keep doing this? That afternoon, I'm on the front porch of a dear friend. Some of you know Rodney Hall, okay? I'm on Rodney Hall's front porch. And I'm sitting there and I'm telling Rodney Hall that story. And he looks at me and he says, I will if you will. All right, what are we talking about here, Rodney? I'll do a step study if you will. I was kind of trapped. So, me and what turns out to be four guys called Daryl By, and we, we did the step study. We worked through the Beatitudes one at a time. Oh, man, 26 weeks of that. And I would tell you guys in this room, the, about the second or third week in there, we're sitting in there and we've all been pretty cautious because most of us are like elders and leaders in this church. And we've been pretty cautious, you know, and the, the, the pride thing is kind of, you know, a little bit of an obstacle there. And about the third week about that, one of the guys came into the room and just kind of went Bleh! and let it out. And it changed from that point on, didn't it, Daryl? You talk about gut level honesty. The guy, we got honest. And I would tell you that, you know, to a man, nobody missed a session of that step study. There was no dropout rate, and there was no absenteeism. And we ground that puppy out. And God used Celebrate Recovery in the life of your pastor. God used the step study built on the Beatitudes to push transformational grace deeper into my heart. Okay, so here's the deal. Where does this relationship start? Where does the kingdom start for you and for me? When you and I come to the place to recognize how desperately we need him. And some of us in this room will put anything else in the place of that to try to avoid admitting how broken and needy and how empty we are. You know, there are others in this room that will do this, like me. Or, or, or maybe it's alcohol or drugs or, or internet porn or whatever it is that soothes you for the short term but leaves you feeling more empty and more depleted than ever before. And Jesus says, his first statement out of his lips, you are blessed. You will be content and happy. And it's, it's a much deeper word than just the idea of surface happiness, circumstantial or happenstance. It's, you, will be, you will be satisfied and content. 
can't. You will know, you will know meaning and happiness of soul and spirit when you recognize how deeply you need him.